What's up, good people all across the world? This is the Dripping in Black podcast. I'm your host, David B. Lewis. And per usual, we have a very, very special guest on our podcast, none other than Dr. Erica Edwards. Dr. Eric Edwards, say hello to the world. Hey, everybody. (laughs) All right, so this is a podcast that celebrates Black excellence. Um, We are reclaiming the narrative uh, across media outlets of what it is to be Black. Um, We are excellent all over in all kinds of categories. And so this podcast is uh, set apart just to show those things. So we're going to engage in a discussion with Dr. Erica Edwards. So let's start off a little bit about Erica Edwards. Tell the world about your backstory. So who am I? That's such a loaded question. Um, uh, Born and raised in Michigan. Uh, left for school for all my schooling and higher education. Went to Spelman. I'm an HBCU alum. Um, got my master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania. My PhD at Georgia State University. So Atlanta is like a second home to me forever. I love Atlanta. Um, even though I grew up here in Southeast Michigan. Um, and I'm home now. And I'm faculty at Wayne State University, which feels so good. It feels like, you know, like a full circle, like a 360. You know, like I left home at 18 to like go find myself. And then I went out and found myself and um, came back home. And um, that's that's been a blessing. But yeah, so at Wayne, I study racial and gender equity issues in urban public education. I'm principally concerned with um, the state of Black girlhood in the Midwest. Um, I work with girls who attend alternative schools. Uh, both disciplinary alternative schools and um, alternative education programs. And I'm just, I really want to, I'm super passionate about eradicating the school prison nexus. I really want to see schools become peaceful, harmonious, um, loving places for Black girls. And I think that um, that probably comes from my experience. Uh Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so we jumped right in, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I didn't know. I'm going with uh, the flow, so. <laughs> no, it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. So I want to go back a little bit because you said you were in the process of finding yourself. And we hear that phrase quite a bit. So, but what did that mean for you when you said you, mm. you found yourself? Yeah, I mean, so I um, I attended Ann Arbor Public Schools. Um as a kid and and my story there is not traditional you know I don't have uh you know your your traditional successful wealthy Ann Arbor type uh parents not that my parents are not you know successful and wonderful people um but my parents lived in Detroit and they really wanted to give me um what they felt Detroit public schools couldn't couldn't give me at the time. This was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, When school choice was not a thing, my mother's stepmother was a nurse at the hospital up here. And so we used that kinfolk, kinship ties that, you know, we do to, um, to give me, you know, at that time, what my family considered to be the best education that they could, that they could provide. Yeah. Um, and so I, I later found out actually, when I got home, I found out that, um, 
the practice, the practice was actually illegal. Um, because, <laughs> because, uh, because my step-grandmother had a uh, power of attorney over me and not legal guardianship. And so technically the school district wasn't supposed to enroll me, but um, you know, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that there are people in the school district at that time that um, um, didn't really care about things like that. So I'm grateful for whoever that person was, you know, in all of its complicated ways, like that's, you know, it's not lost on me the privilege that that was because, I mean, there are cases as recent as maybe like 10 years ago where uh, Black mothers were arrested for uh, sending their kids to school out of district. Yeah. You know, so so I kind of consider myself, um, you know, um, somewhat of a of a, you know, maroon, a fugitive something like that, you know, part, part of that legacy, you know, where you do what you have to do to, to get what you need to get. Yeah. Um, but with that came, you know, a lot of identity issues. I mean, I I was a black girl in a predominantly white space and, um, you know, and so there were just a lot of ways that I felt overlooked, you know, um, I was actually just, uh, talking today about how um, I remember one time I wrote some fan fiction and for this this like pulp uh, fiction writer named Christopher Pike that I loved in the seventh grade okay. and I entered it into a school contest a writing contest and the teacher disqualified me and said oh well this is not a, an original piece of creative writing this is you know this is a fan fiction you didn't come up with these characters on your own you know, and I just think about like how that really could have killed my love for and passion for writing. Wow. Uh, you know, um, lots of experiences like that. You know, I didn't learn anything about black history until the, I didn't even have a black teacher until the 11th grade. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a privilege, you know, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm running my mouth. So I left to find myself in this. I mean, that's why I went to Spelman because I just needed my history, my culture. I was a history major there. Um, and I was a history major because of that world history, the black history class that I took in the 11th grade, where, you know, when I learned that there was so much more to our people than slavery. And, um, and so that's what I mean by finding myself. There are so many ways that schools rob us of having a secure identity. Yeah. So yay, yay history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, was the his was the uh, black male teacher your history teacher or was that somebody else? It was actually two black women teachers. So oh. let's, yes, <laughs> let's be careful about that. Let's be clear. Um, oh, it was yeah, a- I did kind of assume that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I won't let it slide. <laughs> wow. But yeah. Um, okay. Yep. I had a. Um, it was it was called um, African American Humanities, and now you're making we want to see if if um, my high school still has the class um but it was taught by um a black woman english teacher and a black woman history teacher and Excellent. i feel like it was like a two black thing and they had these things called i projects and so they didn't really like lecture you and things like that it was just like you had to go out and find the history and do the work and i just remember like eating it up just loving every minute of it yeah. and 
So I went to Spelman and majored in history after that. It's just yeah. So now you're Dr. Erica Edwards, and you are an assistant professor at Wayne State University. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about what that life is. Ooh, what is that life? Um, so I'm um, in the Educational Leadership and Policy Studies program. I'm really interested in developing leadership for Black lives in schools. I really want to see anti-racist leadership become the standard in the field of education. Not, you know, right now I would say that it's, it has a voice, it has a place, it has a home, a community in the field of education. Um, but I would not say that it is the standard. And given, you know, the dual pandemic that we're currently living through in terms of um, COVID and um, racial, racial violence, it's critical that schools as an, as an institution really take up um, affirming, building up, um, making a home place for Blackness. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actively resisting white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and so at the assistant professor level, I would say that right now, I have a lot of success for that. I mean, a lot of support for that work in some ways, and then also um, a lot of challenges in terms of that work in other ways. Um, like, you know, in order to achieve tenure, there's a, a, a standard in terms of publication and, and grants and attaining notoriety that you have to achieve. Um, and so, the support that exists in the field, the community that exists in the field around this work, like gives me so much life and, um, and, and motivates me to continue in the work. But the fact that the broader systems around that work yeah. don't, don't fully get it, um, you know, makes it difficult at times. Yeah. You know. So I'm going to jump in and talk a little bit about how we uh, met, because I, uh, I think it ties in with what you're talking about, because uh, it was part of the work that you do. Right. So I'm a teacher at a, at a high school and I met you over the summer and you came in to do like professional development for our school around the uh, concept of restorative practices. Right. So talk a little bit about that initiative that you you, you helped to, to lead and the focus of that. Yeah, yeah. So because I'm so concerned about, um, you know, Black girls' school prison nexus experiences, I have to be equally concerned about the strategies and opportunities that can resist um, their criminalization in schools. And I see restorative practice as one element of that. So for those who may not be um, familiar, restorative practice is kind of an offshoot of restorative justice work, um, whereby individuals who have harmed others um, are supported through a process of reconciling um, with the person 
that they harmed. Um, and it's, it's really a collaborative process to think through what happened and to restore or make things right. Um, instead of kind of the white supremacist tend tendency to be retributive or, you know, that whole kind of like eye for an eye like um, thing. Um, and so though um, the restorative justice movement and the practices that it cultivated is really kind of branching out into other fields. And it's, it's starting to gain traction and really be supported in the field of education. Um, and I really see it as an opportunity to engage in a culturally competent approach. Yeah. I see restorative practices very much complementary to uh, African-American traditional cultures, uh, you know, in, in terms of its, its ability to foster connection and to, um, and to restore community, really. And so I got involved in that initiative largely um, because I saw it as an opportunity to help teachers think less in terms of, you know, punishment yeah. and pushing Black girls and all youth out of classrooms and out of schools and more towards building community, which I see as, as a really important part of um, eliminating the racial and gender disparities that we that we're seeing. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a unique uh, perspective to focus on the girls, right? Because typically, when we think about uh, the punishment versus restorative practices, the focus is on the males, mm -hmm. and when we do see uh, a lot of the same trends with our males as well. Mm -hmm. So, so why why the young ladies? Yeah, well, you know, black girls are both hyper visible and invisible. Yeah. You know, um, they're hyper visible in in terms of pathology, right? Like, you know, they're too loud, they're ghetto, they're you know um, disrespectful. Like, you the stigmas you name them, you can mark a black girl's body with that as long as the day is long. You know, but what that does is obscure like who these girls really are, what, what we're going through, yeah. um, you know, how society routinely fails to protect black girls and create a space for them. Yeah. Um, and so even though, you know, I mean, and, and also like, let's not discount the disparities that they face. Like black boys are, um, you know, overrepresented, by and large amongst all students. Um, but black girls are right there in lockstep with them when we look yeah. at their comparison to other girls, you know? So, um, so it's frustrating that black boys can get all the attention and all the resources and energy, you know, I mean, my brother's keeper was kind of like the, the big emblem, um, yeah. that, that proved that that narrative had, um, had really, um, gain some traction and, and power behind it. Um, and so I, I really became interested, you know, in supporting black girls one because of my life and my story. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, just because we can't, we shouldn't, you know, hide this other side of the issue. Yeah. And so I think 
when I met you, I was just uh, impressed in so many ways uh, with uh, the way you think about these things and um, the efforts that you're making to address some of these things. So, but I want to dive in a little bit more. So we have two pandemics going on. And let's kind of talk about from your lens how these pandemic is are impacting Black lives uh, in education. So you can choose whichever pandemic you want to uh, address first. I mean, it's so complicated um, and also like not complicated at the same time, you know. I mean, the first thing to think about, the first thing that comes to mind really is access, you know. Um, and the and the risks that we're putting Black children, families, and communities in, um, because so many of our kids um, are what I like to call school dependent, right? Like yeah. schools for for some Black kids are um, more than just school. Yes. More than just a place of learning, um, and with them shut down you know, you cut off a really serious lifeline, you know, but, but, it, but it's also like being stuck between a rock and a hard place because, you know, the last thing you want to do is open a school building prematurely. And then, yeah. and then that, that building actually becomes a, 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 a health risk, yeah. you know, not just for the child itself, but the child's family, the child's community. Um, so I'm, I'm just, but at the same time, like I'm hopeful, right? Like one of the things that I've been reflecting on in this period is how this thing is like a double-edged sword. You know, there's that saying like, you know, when a, when a door is closed, a window opens, you know? Um, and when we look at the earth, we kind of see that, you know, like, air quality improved in some places and, um, you know, parts of the temperature or the earth's temperature cooled off and there was some restoration and renewal in the earth, you know? Um, and then also too, like, even in my own life, like I had the opportunity to be closer to my family and yeah. to communicate more, um, even yeah. like distant relatives were having zoom family reunions and, you know, it just reminded us like how um, precious we all are. Um, and so I think of that too, the same way in terms of education, like even though this is a really um, scary time for teachers, um, for families, for kids, um, for communities, it's also an opportunity to get innovative yeah. to, um, you know, there's, there's a scholar named Robin Kelly who has this book about um, freedom dreams. It's about the Black radical imagination. And, and it's a really historical treatise about um, all the ways that Black people have imagined better futures, you know? And so even though the pandemic is like this crazy risky time, like it's also an opportunity to freedom dream and to like step forward into a new future for education. So it's fresh, it's strange and messy, but it's also, um, it doesn't have to be bad, you know? Um, yeah. So I see, um, you know, from my seat, um, <laughs> one of the things, one of the challenges that I face uh, in my role as a teacher 
was the lack of technology that students had. So it kind of put a lot of limits on what I would be able to do from my, from my position. But now, due to the pandemic, miraculously, we found a way to get our kids the, uh, the um, you know, technology pieces that they, they deserved. And uh, so now, like you said, um, for me, I can kind of do some things that I've always wanted to do because of that. Of course, there's new challenges that comes along with that as well, right? Now you got to kind of, um, you know, orientate the kids with how to use it as well as the parents and all of that. So we're kind of in the midst of that right now while we're recording this podcast. So we'll see uh, what's birthed out of that. But let's talk about the Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And, you know, that whole lifestyle change, uh, I'll say it as often as I need to, it's not a movement. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing from LeBron James, but it's, it's not a movement. It's a lifestyle. We, we need people to, to see it as a lifestyle change. Uh, we matter. Our lives matter just like any other lives. So, and that should be represented not just uh, between police officers and young black men, but everywhere. So talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter and this impact on your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the point that you just made about like the, the connection to the broader society is what I'm really interested in and, and what's really important to me. It's like Black Lives Matter is a call to be conscious, conscious of how institutions impact individuals, Black individuals. Yes. Um, and to shift so that we're, going back to the restorative piece, so that we're not causing harm. Uh, and, um, and there's actually a movement called Black Lives Matter in schools, which is, you know, a, a beautiful movement that's calling to... Uh, defund school officers, to increase the number of school counselors, to ensure that there are black and ethnic studies in schools, to, and and a host of other uh, important anti-racist moves to make sure that um, we're not, we're not teaching white supremacy. We're not uh, embedding these attitudes that continue to denigrate black life um, in this country. And um, so it, you know the racial uprisings are are offer um, hope, really that um, that that we can uh, re envision what it means to teach and learn. I mean, one of the foundational lectures that I give um, in some of the classes that I've taught is around the difference between education and schooling. You know, yeah. Um, you know, schooling is sit at the desk, raise your hand, take notes, you know, all the behaviors, the performative tasks that constitutes, you know, what happens when you're in a school building. Education, on the other hand, is, is a robust practice that can happen anywhere, anytime with anyone. Um, It's an ancient practice that has happened independently of school buildings. Um, and, and Black Lives Matter in schools is really a call for education, you know? Like how do we start to engage Black children and youth 
in the process and educators as well in the process of seeing teaching and learning and leadership as something that's more expansive than just, you know, every student succeeds act and, you know, so on and so forth. All those things, you know, make us rely on these metrics that, that do harm to black kids. You know, so how do we start to expand ourselves so that we can make more room for black lives in schools? Yeah, such a um, important work that uh, you are doing. Um, and you're, you're primarily doing research as well, right? Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about some of your research that you're doing. Sure. So I have a number of studies right now that um, that I'm developing and working on. Um, the big one is the restorative practice intervention study that I've been working on with um, at your your districts with your districts. Um, I also um, have two studies around Black girlhood. One is um, using sister circles with girls in an alternative school in order to learn what we can learn from them. Like, what are the implications for K twelve educators when we learn from Black girls who are at the end of the educational pipeline? Um, it's another project that I really love. Um, I also work with uh, uh, Black girls at a middle school who are in chronic disciplinary patterns. And we brought this really um, wonderful and amazing uh, STEM intervention um, that Dr. Natalie King at Georgia State University developed. It's a culturally relevant STEM engagement um, curriculum. And so we're studying that to find out whether or not STEM engagement can, can support them or it can provide a protective factor for this particular group of girls. Um, I think that a lot of times, like we, uh, we, you know, black girls are also marginalized by STEM in the way that all girls are. And sometimes I wonder if kind of our attitudes around traditional femininity, like the way that black girls are supposed to be, or girls are supposed to be kind of you know, causes the boredom, the frustration, the anger, you know, and sometimes I wonder if we expand the opportunities that we provide to them, like if we make sure that they're meaningfully connected to STEM, you know, I have dreams for like theater and art and music and, you know, expanding those kinds of engagement for the kids, for the girls who are always excluded from those things. Like we bring STEM programs to schools all the time, but those are for the kids who, you know, show an interest in STEM. Like, what if we do roll out the red carpet around these initiatives for um, for students who don't appear to be as engaged? Yeah. Um, and so that pro- that project's really exciting too. Yeah. Those are three, and then I also collaborate with um, other colleagues of mine in the College of Education around um, issues that pertain to vulnerable populations. So. Yeah. So a lot of uh, important work that's being done. Talk about the um, the impact that research, like the re- research that you do, has on life in real time. You know, yeah. you know, a lot of times people don't realize that connection there. So, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So, I consider myself to be what's called a community engaged researcher. It's a specific branch of research that um, really seeks to ensure that research is benefiting those who need it the most. Um, or, or, you know, a lot of times research is intensely problematic because we go 
to communities and we mine data and we get all this data and we go run off and we don't do anything with it and nobody ever sees it, you know? Um, but all of these all of these studies that I'm engaged with are interested in figuring out like how do we use the research research process and leverage the resources that universities have to you know make make transformative change in real time. Yeah. So you know the the hope like with um, the projects that we're working on um, and also the projects I'm doing with the girls are that not. Not only do I learn something in terms of, you know, how we um, develop educational leaders and build better educational policies, um, but the participants walk away with skill sets, changed perspectives, practices in their, in, you know, that they can call upon, um, and also a support network, right? I always want to make sure, like, you know, I work in circles, you know, so the girls that I work with, they have each other. The uh, teachers and school leaders, support personnel that I work with, they have each other. So even after, if the project goes away, if the funding dries up, hopefully the ideas, the relationships won't. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, man, as you were talking, my mind was going so many places. When you got on education and the way you described it, it excited me because um, education, like you said, schooling is the things that, you know, the behavioral type things that you look for when you walk into a school, but the education, there should be no cap on it, right? And how exciting would education be if that's what we were experiencing, right? It wouldn't marginalize anybody because there would be something in there for everyone. So um, that's, I'm gonna stop there, but I can go on and on and on. So um, I think I want to kind of, uh, Kind of close the conversation out and we'll have to come back again if, if you would be willing to, to talk a little bit more Absolutely. about some of the other things but i appreciate this um i want to talk a little bit about um what what it is that you're working on right now that you would like the world to know about and what how can the world help you with it oh um i mean i i Right now, you know, I'm my my most my passion project is the work that I'm doing with my girls. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, asking for help. I guess it would just be, um, you know, it's so funny. Like no one ever asks you what kind of help do you need. Like that's that speaks to my socialization as a black woman. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'll make a way out of no way. <laughs> you know what I mean? So thank you. For I want uh, I want to correct myself too because I got a mentor that that'll get on me. I'm going to change the word help to support. Thank you. So, you know, so how could the world support you Yeah. And, uh, and what you're doing? I think the world could support me by making a home place for Black girls if, in the communities where you are. Nice. Um, if you want to get involved in my work, like I hope that, you know, we can put my Twitter handle or, or oh, absolutely. email address or something like that. You know, if folks are in Detroit and want to, um, get involved, like, uh, they could, I can always use manpower or human power. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, I think like we need to find black girls and love on them, you know, think about the ways that how, how your actions, uh, affect another black girl. Like, are you relying too hard on your black girl to take care of your home? Yeah. To, to uh, you know, are we asking them to take on adult like 
tasks and responsibilities before they're ready. Like think through those kind of things um, and, and, and be in relationship with them. Like be that soft spot, that safe landing place that not all of not all of our girls have. Yeah. Okay. So it's a couple of more things before we uh, close out this episode um, with uh, the great Dr. Erica Edwards, um, but with the caveat that she'll come back on at a later date. Absolutely. The first question is: uh, Have you ever been on the cover of a magazine? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Not ever. <laughs> It, it would have to be for me to do that. It would have to be like some kind of like uh, amazing political magazine or something like that. Okay. Well, we have a thing that we like to do for our guests uh, that's specific to the Dripping in Black <laughs> podcast. Oh my goodness! We have the Dripping in Black magazine. Oh wow! And we place all of our guests on that cover of that magazine for that episode. So, so oh, man. there's your magazine cover. Oh my goodness. I'm so humbled. Thank <laughs> you. This is so cool. I can't wait to share it. Like, yeah. it looks like yeah. it's supposed to be there. Yeah. So that's definitely going to be a parting gift. Um, since we've actually released some episodes, you can look over my right and left shoulder and there's a couple of magazine covers up there. So we're going to build out that uh, wall back there with our guests. So. All right. Yeah. So that parting gift, we will get to you. Um, the next thing is, as you mentioned, you have social media. So I want to give you a chance to kind of run down any social media you want to share. Sure. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Erica B. Edwards. So just my name. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see a lot of picture of my, my partner, my kiddos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So thank you for coming out. Uh, Telling you my mind is still going a lot of different places, but I'll just have to cap it off there. (laughs) Well, thank you for the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Up next, the last drip. But first, a message from Anchor. A dripping in black thanks to the very thoughtful, very intelligent Dr. Erica Edwards for one of the most important conversations that we've had on the dripping in black podcast to date. However, we have reached the final segment in our podcast called The Last Drip. The Last Drip is the last opportunity for us to squeeze in a bit more of black excellence before we leave you. This segment highlights a common thread between our guests in our vast and rich African-American history. For this episode, we focus on one of our most unsung trailblazers, Mary Church Terrell. She was born Mary Church in 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee. Both of her parents were entrepreneurs. Her mother, Louisa, was a hair salon owner. Her father, Robert, through business and real estate deals, would become the first black millionaire in the South. Both were former slaves. Years after her parents' divorce, Mary moved to Ohio. Mary eventually attended Oberlin College in Ohio, where she became one of the first African-American women to earn both a bachelor's degree in 1884 and a master's degree in 1888. 
1891, she married Robert Terrell, thereby becoming Mary Church Terrell. In 1892, the lynching of one of her childhood friends sparked what would become a life dedicated to fighting for racial and gender equality. Mary Church Terrell was a writer, educator, and an international activist who wrote numerous poems, scholarly articles, and short stories on the subject of racial and gender equality. In 1896, her passion for the racial and gender uplift of black women led her to co-found and become the first president of the NACW, the National Association of Colored Women. The NACW eventually became the largest federation of black women's clubs. The NACW's model, Lifting As We Climb, promoted the simultaneous uplift of rights for women and African-Americans. In 1904, the NACW was incorporated as the NACWC, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which still exists today. In 1940, Terrell detailed her own battles with gender and racial discrimination in the United States in her autobiography, A Colored Woman in a White World. In 1949, at the tender age of 86, she helped organize some of the first sit-ins at segregated restaurants. Three months before her 90th birthday, she achieved her goal of desegregating restaurants in Washington, D.C. This episode's guest, Dr. Erica Edwards, has a passion for racial and gender equality in urban schools that is evidenced by her studies and her life's work, which reminds us of the life and legacy of this episode's last drip, Mary Church Terrell. My thanks to PBS.org, BlackPast.org, and LegalLegacy.wordpress.com for the knowledge. And in all honesty, there is much more to Mary Church Terrell's story than I am able to adequately chronicle here. There's also a great video series on PBS.org entitled Unladylike 2020, Unsung Women Who Changed America, in which Terrell's career and life is highlighted. And as always, I implore you to get up on your African-American history. It is vast and it is rich. And despite it not being taught in our schools as we would like, it's out there for us to learn if we so choose. And as always, I implore you to be good, be good, be good. It is a choice. You have just experienced a Dripping in Black production.